Well, good morning again, church. Thank you so much for gathering here. Thank you for bringing the church into uh, this space this morning. For those that are gathered for Cross Point at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room or your dining room, wherever you happen to be tuning in from. Uh, if you're somebody that's new, if we've never met, my name is Jamie. It's my joy and privilege to serve as one of the pastors at Cross Point. I also get the joy of opening up God's word with you all this morning. Um, as uh, Eric said, we're in this series called Abraham, a field guide to loving God. Um, and so we'll get into that in a moment. But just, again, thank you for taking time to pray. Let's continue to be um, in prayer. And one of the things that we, I am praying that we will be reminded of, even in this text that we'll be in this morning, is that there is a God who loves us, pursues us, a God who has invited us into this marvelous story that we were just praying about, that one day he is going to set everything right. And there's these just astounding promises that God makes. And I can sometimes make promises, and it's kind of like, well, will I come through or not? But the reality for God is every promise that he makes will actually come true. Like, they all are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus, and so we can rest in that, we can celebrate that reality. And so I hope that our time together this morning will, will help just remind us of that. And so a few weeks ago, yeah, we began this series. Uh, it's in the you know, Genesis uh, chapter 12 um, through 22. We're gonna be studying this week after week, kind of through most of the, the spring, to look at the life of Abraham, not because he's a perfect man. And if you were here last week, you're like, oh yeah, he definitely wasn't. And I'll kind of recap that a bit in a moment. But he does demonstrate for us what it looks like to pursue this love of God. The call to love God is the thing. It's like our ultimate calling. And so what does it look like? And how can Abram, this man that we meet as Abram, who becomes Abraham, like instruct us, both in the positive things of what that looks like, and maybe some examples to follow, but also in the things where he's like, he fails miserably, and yet that only highlights God's grace and God's mercy. Because ultimately, this isn't so much about our love of God, but it starts with the love that God has for us, and then we just live in glad response to that. And so we're gonna pick up the story uh, this week in Genesis chapter 13. We're gonna look at verses three to 18. So if you brought a Bible, uh, please follow along. Uh, you can also go on your phone to cplife.church and click the tab there that says sermon notes. The text will be there as well as space to take notes. Anything that's up on the slides this morning uh, will be there um, as well. And there's some paperback Bibles in the pews as well if you want to follow along that way. And so this is God's word to us this morning. We'll begin yeah, in verse three. It says this, he, that's Abram, went by stages from the Negev to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had formerly been to the site where he had built the altar, and Abram called on the name of the Lord there. Verse five, now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together. For they had so many possessions that they could not stay together, and there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. Verse eight, so Abram said to Lot, please, Let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen since we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. And so Lot looked out and he saw the entire plain of the Jordan as far as Zoar was well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden and the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself, and then Lot journeyed eastward. 
and they separated from each other. And Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain, and he set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. It's just a little foreshadowing of where the story, a part of the story we'll get to later in the life of Abraham. Verse 14, after Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, look, from the place where you are, look north and south, east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. So get up. Walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. And so Abram moved his tent, and he went to live near the oaks of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. So this is God's word for us this morning. And so as we get into this text, all right, um, by way of just quick recap, God has called this man named Abram. He wasn't doing the right things. He wasn't worshiping the right God. He was a worshiper of the false gods, the false gods of the moon God. And yet God came down to him and said, Abram, I want to give you this land. I want to make you into a great nation, even though he and his wife have no children, no family of their own at, the, at this point. And Abram responds in faith. And so, so far, so good. And then we got to last week where there's a famine that occurs in the land where Abram is. After he had left everything, he's following God, he's loving God. It seems like he's all in, like heart, soul, mind, strength. He's all in. There's a famine. And rather than consult with God and say, Lord, what would you have for me? he instead decides to decide on his own. Um, and he travels with his family and everything that he has, and he goes down to Egypt. And so the man that was told, I'm gonna, God said, I'm going to give you this land, has now left this land. And then when he gets to Egypt, he recognizes that his wife is beautiful, all right, um, which that's a good thing that he would recognize that. And yet he's not stating that to her because of his deep care for her. He's looking out for self. Because he says, when Pharaoh, when we get to Egypt, when Pharaoh sees you, he's going to kill me and then take you into his household or his harem, all right? And so he says, Sarai, will you please lie and just tell them, I'm your brother. Let's just, let's just do that. And that's what happens. And she is taken. And so he goes, he leaves the land, and now he's given away his wife. God promises land and offering, and now Abram's left the land, and he's given away his wife. I mean, it's just terrible. And so in this moment, Abram's not obviously doing the right thing. He's not loving God. He's not loving his wife. He's dishonoring the Lord. He's dishonoring his wife, his family, all of that. And yet God intervenes. God brings it to happen that he can leave Egypt. And not only does he just leave Egypt, but Pharaoh like blesses him on the way out and gives him all these, these flocks and herds and gives him camels. And you're like, well, what's the big deal with camels? Just think of that as like the luxury car of that time of the, in the world, right? In that place. It's like this huge blessing. He just has this abundance. And so he goes from famine then to this sort of flourishing because of the grace of God. And so what we have here as we get into this text this morning, really in these opening verses, in verses three to four, at the start of chapter 13, is a return, right? He was in the right place, then he left, and now he is returning to the land that God had promised him. Things are moving now in the right direction. And so I was thinking about this, like the reality is like we love a good return story, don't we? Like a good comeback story. 
um, March 18th, 1995. That might not be a date that you remember, but I do because I was a freshman in college living outside of Chicago where they just love all things sports and they love their Chicago Bulls and they were still in mourning over the greatest player to ever play, Michael Jordan, who had retired and decided, I'm gonna go play baseball, right? But on March 18th, 1995, because there was no Instagram or Twitter, any sort of social media, Michael Jordan used what he had a fax machine and simply faxed in these words, I'm back. And the very next day, he was playing in Indianapolis against the Indiana Pacers. And the guys on my floor, we gathered in the floor lounge around like a 13-inch TV that barely worked. And we had like these rabbit ears and we're trying to tune. We were just so excited to see that he was back. I mean, there's just this sort of excitement and this enthusiasm. We love stories of comebacks, Loved watching five game, his, his fifth game when he dropped 55 points at Madison Square Garden. It's like, oh my gosh, he really is back. It's just amazing, right? Now, maybe you're not as excited about that as, as I am, but I remember just, just reveling in, in that. Maybe you can think of a movie, perhaps, like something that you, or a story or a novel where there's this story of like a return, like a comeback. I'm a child of the 80s, and so one of the greatest sports movies of all time, The Karate Kid. Um, some of you know this because of the remakes, and I'm talking about the original, man, all right? And so in the original, you might know this story. I may or may not have watched the closing scene on YouTube last week, and, or last couple days. I may or may not have shed a tear, all right? Um, and in watching this, you know he, Daniel LaRusso, right? This like wimpy little kid that keeps getting beat up at school, right? He's like finally, he's made it. All right, Mr. Miyagi has trained him, and he's got this, this moment, this big showdown with this like arch enemy, all right, that basically represents all that's evil in the world, all right? And he has this showdown, and his leg gets injured, and you know, they're like, sweep the leg. You know, I mean, it's like this whole thing, uh, if you haven't seen it. Um, and he has to leave, and they're literally ready, like the announcer is like presenting Johnny with this big trophy, because Daniel has lost. And then outruns Daniel's girlfriend. I forget her name at the time, right? She run, runs out um, and she whispers to the announcer and you hear the announcer go like, Daniel LaRusso's gonna fight. Daniel LaRusso's gonna fight. And he comes like hobbling out there and then he does the whole thing, right? Like all of that. And if, if you haven't seen it, you should go watch it. But anyway, there's this, this moment, like this return. Oh my goodness, like he is back. And it's, I don't know what your favorite stories are, but like those things, they resonate with us. And in some ways, what we're looking at here is like, okay, Abram, good. Like, you're back. He has returned. Like, there's something beautiful that's happening. And that is true, and that should be celebrated. Like, when it gives us these details, Bethel and tent and altar and called on the name of the Lord, these are all clues in the text. Bethel is the house of the Lord, house of God. It's helpful sometimes as we read the scriptures, almost to, I mean, to read it backwards. I don't mean, like, literally backwards, but sort of like with what you know Go back and read these things and know, oh, God eventually is going to create a, calls people to create a tabernacle, a place where his presence would dwell. And there's all these kind of clues that's saying, oh, enjoy the presence of God. So in the house of God, there's this tent, and then there's an altar that he sets up, and he calls on the name of the Lord. Like there's this return that has happened. And so it should be celebrated, yes, and in many ways, we can look at this and say, way to go, Abram. Here's a good example to follow. But can we also be honest? We can't forget what led up to this. And so what we see throughout the scriptures is there's only one person, and it's Jesus, who's been completely faithful, who's completely loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Like He loved the Father perfectly. 
Abram, even in his return, it's this tension, right? Yeah, there's beauty. There's much to celebrate. But there's a brokenness. So he's returning, but I'm sure Sarai still has some things to say to Abram at this point, and rightly so. I love the way Kent Hughes in his commentary on this said it. He said, in essence, there's like two Abrams, two Abrahams. They represent what we are, people of faith, but strange mixtures of trust and distrust. Abram in Egypt descended to a small, shriveled heart, but Abram back in Canaan Elevated to a great magnanimous heart, the heart difference in this man of faith depended upon whether he trusted or distrusted God's word. And that same thing faces us. Will we trust the word of God? Will we trust and believe the story that we're part of? Will we trust that God is good even in the midst of hardship and of difficulty, of real pain? Are we going to see God as a God that cares deeply? And so whether it's an image I talk about, like of a return of Michael Jordan or Daniel LaRusso or whatever story you have in mind, the image, though, that we should have ultimately that fuels all of this is not so much about what we do and about our return, but it's about the image of God our Father. You think of Rembrandt's painting of the return of the prodigal. You go and read this in Luke 15. And the prodigal son, who, like Abram, went and did all the wrong things, sinned grievously against God, against his family, eventually decides to come back home. Not because he thinks he's gonna take up his spot again as a son, but he's hoping maybe just to be a servant in his father's household. And yet when his dad sees him, he'd just been waiting for his son. And his dad sprints toward him and he envelops him in a hug and he begins to, to kiss him and he, he calls for the best robe to be put on him and he, he says, kill the fattened calf. We're throwing an epic party. Invite all the neighbors, right? Like, I mean, it's just this massive celebration because his son that he believed to be dead had, been, had come home. And so, friends, what we need to see as we study the life of Abram, and yes, our call to love God is first and foremost the love that the Father has for us. Because we are like Abram. There's times we're going to do things that are beautiful, but, man, we are so broken. Like one minute I'm believing things, and the next minute I'm completely forgetting the promises of God. And what we need to call to mind if we're going to live a life of a love of God and subsequently then a love of neighbor is the love that God has for you. You're like, I don't know if God loves, like, listen, part of God's love towards you is even that, like, that you're here this morning to be reminded of God's love, to hear of God's love. I want you to take that away. Like, God loves you. He gave a son for you. And what he did for Abram, he's continuing to do for us. He invites us to return. And so that question, I think, is something we got to wrestle with, not only this morning, but throughout this series and all of our life. Like, we wander off, we don't trust, we don't believe, we make poor decisions, we sin. There's evil that exists, not just out there, but in my heart and in your heart. Will you and I, will we return? And the way you picture God matters in that moment. Are you seeing him angry and upset at you, or are you seeing there's a father that's ready to run towards you, who's been waiting for you? who loves to welcome you in and to shower you with grace. That's the picture. That's what's gonna fuel a love of God. 
And so the moments where Abram gets it right, it's only motivated by what God has done for him. I think of the Apostle John as he's given this vision, because this is the book of Revelation. Hear Jesus' words recorded through John as he's writing to these various churches. And he's saying some encouraging things, but also some things to consider, some rebuke. He says to one church in Revelation chapter 2, I know that you've persevered, you've endured hardship. He's like, way to go. This has been a hard season, all right? In many ways, allow these words to be spoken over us this morning, right? You've persevered. You've endured hardship for the sake of my name, and you've not grown weary. He's like, way to go. And yet, so there's beauty, but there's brokenness. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. How easy it is to do that, to maybe just get busy doing the church religious things and miss the fact that there's a Father in heaven that loves us, that pursues us, that welcomes us in, that showers us with grace, and we just get busy just kind of doing the monotonous religious things, and we have not paid attention to our hearts. Have your affections been stirred for Christ? Are you spending time in his word and with God's people so that we can remind one another of the beauty and the wonder that is this good news, this gospel? Charles Spurgeon spoke of it this way. He said, I must take care above all that I cultivate communion with Christ. For though that can never be the basis of my peace, it will be the channel of it. So you don't cultivate communion and love and time with God in order to achieve something, right? It's not something that you have to earn. But at the same time, he's like, hey, if you're not paying attention to that, you're robbing yourself of this, this opportunity, this channel where you'll experience the peace of God, the love of God. And so this, these opening couple of verses are just this reminder. Hey, come, return this week in the ways that you have failed, the things that you're still carrying with you with, with shame, things that maybe you're afraid to not only admit to yourself or to others or to God. He is waiting. He is ready. He's welcoming you. Return to your first love. And Abram, bit by bit, we're starting to see, okay, he's not going to do it perfectly, but he is making some of these steps. And one of the ways we know that he's actually beginning to embrace this is what takes place in the next section. Because as you heard, as I read through this, and we'll look at it more in just, in just a moment, verses 5 to th 13, Abram has a right to tell Lot, listen, Lot, you're my nephew, I'm the revered uncle, I'm the elder, you're following me, all right? This is my journey, this is my quest, all right? God made the promise to me, you're just hanging on with me, right? And he's saying, listen, I can just take what I want and you can go another direction. Because the flourishing, this is fascinating, right? The flourishing is so intense. They went from famine to flourishing and now they're fighting because there's so much prosperity, that they're actually arguing over like, well, no, my, you know, my livestock can't graze here, these pastures, and so something has to change. And I think it's just a good reminder, for one, that we can lose sight of God, the love of God, and famine, but man, it's also a dangerous place to be when there's prosperity and flourishing because we start to think we did this, we got this, we become more fiercely independent. And what we're going to see with Abram is a man who bit by bit is beginning to understand the love the Father has for him. And because he's beginning to understand that, that allows him then to respond in love of God and love of neighbor. Like he's willing to relinquish his 
right. We hate that. Can we just be honest? Like everything in us rails against that. Like we think it's our right to all kinds of things. We can live with very sort of entitled mindsets. I think if, as a kid growing up with a group of friends and we're all walking toward the parking lot and it was always a race to like, shotgun, I called it, I saw the car first, I've got, right? I mean, like we do those sort of, that's a silly example, but like we will fight over that, at least we would, about like, no, I called it for, this is my right. And that's a silly little way, but man, this plays out in significant ways. And Abram could have, according to the view of the world and the culture, said, this is my right. Lot, you're gonna take what's left over. But that's not what ends up happening. And so Abram says to him, look at verses nine to 10. Isn't the whole land before you? I love this. Like Abram is operating not with a scarcity mindset here. He's not saying all the land is equal, all right? But he's like, hey, just look out. Separate from me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And in this moment, then it tells us at the start of verse 10 that Lot then, okay, Lot began to survey. Lot looked out. And Lot, he's a smart dude. According to just the world standards, all right? Not much has changed, right? Real estate, location, 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 right? Like he's like, hey, what's the best location? And he looks out and he says, wow, there's this part of the land that's well watered. It's like the garden of the Lord. We just came out of famine. If there's a well watered area, it's like that, maybe I should consider that. So from a human vantage point, the wisdom of the world, that would make sense. But there's also these little clues in the text. It says it was like Egypt. Terrible things just occurred in Egypt, right? And now it's likening it to Egypt. That should be a clue like, oh, Maybe he's not choosing the right way. Maybe he should have consulted God. Maybe he shouldn't operate according, operate according to the wisdom of the world. Lot begins to survey, and he picks what is best, at least according to the world standards. The lenses by which he's looking, like we gotta talk for a moment about seeing. We gotta talk about like what lenses are you and I wearing as we operate in this world. This past Wednesday, I had an appointment that I was both super excited about and also completely terrified of. I had an eye exam, okay? Um, I was excited about it because everyone in my family, my wife and daughters, um, all have uh, glasses, and every time they go to pick out a new pair of glasses, I'm very jealous. I'm like, oh, those look cool. Warby Parker, man, I want in on that, right? Um, and, uh, and so I've always just kind of thought that'd be kind of fun to get, but I've, you know, like apparently I didn't have any issue seeing. But lately... I'm a couple weeks away from 46. Um, I've noticed like it's a little harder when I'm like reading. And so I decided to make an appointment, all right? Now I'm terrified because when I see somebody like get something in their eye, they put, they're even just putting contacts in, like I have to look away, that's terrible. As a Visine commercial comes on, I immediately start crying. I'm like, make it stop. Like I just, I hate it. Um, and so I also, in my excitement, also was a bit terrified to go in and get this, this eye appointment. But I went in there. And they took my name, and I filled out all the paperwork. And then they said, okay. And some of you know this drill, right? They're like, just place your chin right here. Keep your eyes wide. Get ready for the burst of air that's going into your eyeball, right? I'm like, wait, what is happening? And before I knew it, boom, boom. And I'm like, ah, you know? And I didn't know what in the world was going on. And then they put drops in it, which I was not cool with. Um, and then the doctor was like, okay, so 
eye exams before? I'm like, no, uh, first time. He's like, oh, well, we recommend every 46 years. I'm like, are you being sarcastic? Like, um, you know, so he's like, you're right on time. I'm like, okay. Um, and so we proceeded through the thing. But eventually we got to the spot. And you guys, if you're familiar with this, I was not. But there's also this other machine they sat you, they sit you in front of. And they begin to, like, cycle through. It's like this machine that's right there, right? And they change out all the lenses, um, and he's like, how does this look? How does this look? Now cover your left eye, cover your right eye, right? And he begins to showcase all these different things. I'm like, well, that looks better. Nope, that's worse. That's better. No, a little bit, you know? And we went through it. Pretty mundane thing, normal thing, right? As an aside of the story, prescription glasses arrive in a week, but that's, all right, so here we go. Um, and uh, prescription reading glasses, I should say. Um, but in this whole process, as you cycle through, it's like this, just this reminder, Right? Oh, the lens, like what lens, like it makes a difference. I know it's a very basic point, but we need to think about this maybe in this way. Like, are you and I seeing with a lens of scarcity or of faith? And the default of the human heart, I think, is scarcity and it's self-motivated. The lens is by which we see lots operating in that way. This is what I need. That's how he's seeing the world. I'm gonna take what is best for me. But Abram, by the grace of God is beginning to see what we, with what we might call gospel lenses or lenses of faith, and it's bringing this clarity. Like he's actually able to relinquish his rights because at the end of the day, he knows that God has made a promise to him, and it doesn't matter what Lot does. It doesn't matter how these things play out. God is going to be true to his promises, and he's operating, and he's seeing the world with the lens of faith. A few verses earlier, he saw it with the lens of fear and of scarcity and taking matters into his own hands, choosing self over caring for his wife. But now, welcomed back by God, he's got these new lenses with which to see the world. And so the question becomes for us, are you and I, like how are we seeing the world? What kind of lenses are we wearing? Is it lenses where we would look out and just see scarcity, Everyone, every man for himself, I gotta get mine. Or is there a lens of faith, a resting in the gospel? And regardless of how things go in this world, being able to rest in the fact that if you're in Christ, you have all that you need. And then all the promises of God find their yes, their completion in the person and work of Jesus. What's guiding you? What lenses are you wearing? I think of Paul writing to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. One of my favorite lines in the Bible I'll read here in a moment. And he's just doing this contrast. He's talking about the weightiness of even just trying to be a Christian in the world, called to be ministers of the, of the gospel. And he's like, man, we deal with hardship and pain and there's highs and lows. And he's kind of laying all this, this out in chapter 6. And then we get in verses kind of eight to 10. Let me read this, these to you. You see this wonderful contrast, this upside down way of the kingdom. It's a matter of seeing with the lenses of this world and the culture, lenses of self or lenses of gospel lenses and lenses of faith and of security in Christ. He says, so we're regarded as deceivers, yet true as unknown, yet recognized, as dying, yet see we live, as being disciplined, yet not killed, as grieving, yet always rejoicing, as poor and yet enriching many. And then here's this line, I love this, as having nothing, yet 
possessing everything. These are lenses of faith. These are gospel lenses that the Apostle Paul is wearing. It has changed his entire view. So regardless if he is beaten, left for dead, abandoned, shipwrecked, starving, it literally doesn't matter. In times of abundance or times of absolute, like literal, actual scarcity, he can look out through these lenses of faith and say, the world may say I don't have anything, but in Christ I possess everything that Jesus has got me. I've been brought into his story and circumstances will not change the reality of the story that I'm part of. Abram is beginning to see this. And what Abram knew in part, we as the church living on the other side of the cross and resurrection can now say with the apostle Paul, I've got nothing and yet I possess everything because Jesus has taken possession of me. Jesus has condescended to me. Jesus has died in my place. Jesus has resurrected. Jesus is ruling and reigning, and he's going to come back one day and set everything right. We have been brought into that story. The words of Jim Elliott come to mind, who's a, a missionary that gave his life for the cause of Christ. When friends and family member were members were understandably concerned about him and a group of friends going into the jungle to a tribe of people that literally wanted to kill them to share the good news of the gospel. The wise thing, right? I imagine myself, if Jim and I sat down, I'd be like, bro, listen, man, you, got, you just graduated, like you got a good degree, like maybe, maybe do this some other time. But this burning passion for more people, every tribe, tongue, and nation, taking what Abram was promised, right? He'd be a blessing to all the nations and saying, that's what we get to be part of when Jesus gave the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. A man like Jim Elliott and his friends said, yes, we're going to go, even though it would cost them everything. He had a gospel lens, these lenses of faith that would allow him to live with the mindset, they may take everything, and yet at the end of the day, I... I may have nothing seemingly, but I possess everything because I'm in Christ. And so he would write these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Lenses of faith, gospel lenses. Unless you understand what Christ has done in the story that you're part of, that doesn't make any sense. Because the world will continually say, like, get yours. You do you. You carve out your name, your identity. You're the brand, like you do all of that. And you're like, well, maybe I don't take it that crazy. The reality is all of that seeps in. We're all paying attention. We're all sort of curating and cultivating an image out into the world. How will people respond to this picture? What about this one? I don't know, I'm swiping through. Maybe this picture will look best if I post this one. Like, we do it in countless ways. How do we present? We're trying to cultivate and curate a particular image. The gospel frees us up to have these lenses now that we can actually begin to see more clearly who we are in Christ. Now the Father has welcomed us, what Christ has done for us. So Abram, though not perfectly, is beginning to live with those sort of lenses on. And now let's look at the last section here, verses 14 to 18. There's this promised restoration. It's God now is going to invite Abram. So, okay, Lot took his chance to look and see, and Lot made his decisions. He's like, Abram, I want to invite you to see. Let me remind you again. Let me speak words over you. 
of the story you've been brought into, of the promises I made to you. Those promises are still there. They're still going to come true. I know what you did in Egypt, but I extend my grace, my forgiveness. And there's this promised restoration because seemingly right now it looks like, oh man, the promised land, like Lot's getting the good places. So God intervenes again. See the kindness of our God. Because what he's doing for Abram, friends, like we now, we know more than Abram did. And what we're able to celebrate is, is like it's so much clearer because of what we know about the person and work of Christ. So says the Lord said to Abram, look. And for just a moment here, let these words, these promises that are spoken to this man named Abram thousands of years ago, encourage us, build us up to remind us of the story that we've been brought into. And so he tells him to look. And he tells him this, look from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west, for I will give you. The Lord says, I'm going to do this, and your offspring, I will give you and your offspring forever, all the land that you see. Abram has no offspring at this point, but God says, I will make this happen. And then he says this, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted So get up and walk around the land and through its length and width, for I will give it to you. A couple things in here. So many images and words spoken by God that we see in the scriptures, again, are these like these hyperlinks. They're meant to take us to other parts of God's story. And one of them is right here when he says, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. At one level, This is an amazing promise because a few chapters from now, God is going to take Abram. He's going to speak the same promise, but he's going to use different imagery. Look up at the sky, Abram. Look up at the night sky. Can you count the stars? And of course, Abram can't, as we can't. He's like, I'm going to make your offspring, your descendants, like the stars of the sky. And here he's saying, like the dust of the earth. I mean, it's a powerful picture, isn't it? Our God is basically saying to him, whether you look up or down, whatever's happening, just know this, I've got you. This promise that he's making. But also, there's this whole other layer here because dust is significant in the Genesis story. It is from the dust of the ground, from the Adama that Adam, Adam was made, right? So out of the dirt, the dirt man, Adam, was made. And now what is being communicated is like this same image, the dust of the earth. Like that's what's going to populate the entire earth. God's image bears, that God is going to bring about his redemptive purposes. What he promised to Adam, even though he failed, all right, God is making sure that that carries on. And so God is making this incredible promise. He's like, I'm restoring you. I want you to be, I want you to take up this calling to be a blessing, to multiply, to have dominion. And that's what the next image gets at when he says, get up and walk around the land. To us, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It seems a little weird, right? Like, okay, now go on this walk, like you going in your neighborhood this afternoon and sort of like, I claim that house and that house. I mean, you could try it, but I don't think that's gonna work. But in ancient times, when a king conquered a land, they literally would set out and it was a way to showcase, this is my land 
and this is my land, and this is my land. This belongs to me, and this belongs to me. This is what a ruler did. Well, God's the ultimate ruler, but as people made in his image, we are called to rule. That's part of the original calling. And so when God says this to Abram, it's a reminder, you've got good work to do. I'm restoring you to your original calling. You have failed miserably, but I'm going to restore you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. It's going to, your people's going to be like the dust of the earth. And here is this world to cultivate and to steward and to expand. And then it tells us in verse 18 that Abram then built an altar to the Lord. And an altar can be thought of in this way, sometimes referred to as this thin space, sort of this overlap where heaven and earth begin to meet. You ever had one of those moments where you just kind of like, man, I just I feel the presence of God, feel God's spirit moving. Like that's what's associated with these altars. And the place of Eden was the place of the ultimate presence of God, where Adam and Eve walked with God where they lived as the rulers they were called to be. And it seemed like all of that was lost, but now God is saying, no, it's continuing. I'm inviting you into this. And so Abram builds this altar to enjoy the presence of God. And so as we close, I want to take us one last passage, because as I said before, we live, or sorry, Abram lived with just sort of this anticipation wondering how this was all gonna play out. We know the story. We know what happened with Abram. We know how God came through. And we ultimately know what God has done in this ultimate act of restoration through his son. And in the midst of hardship and difficulty, of uncertainty, as we look out around the world and we're grieved by what is happening, we wonder what's going, how all that's going to resolve. We wonder how things are going to resolve in, in our own lives, in our own neighborhoods, in our own workplace, whatever it happens to be. And Paul, as he writes in this letter, this book of Romans in chapter 8, he's dealing with these sort of anticipating these questions. What if this happens? What if this? So let me just read this with very little commentary it's the word of God. Let, let this sort of just wash over you. Be reminded of the good news. May this be the lenses that we wear, that we would live and we would see everything through the truths that I'm about to read. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 39, if God is for us, who is or who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? You and I may not get all that we want in this life, but we can trust that the God who gave us his son, anything that he is withholding right now, some way, somehow, is for our good. And one day, everything is going to resolve. And one day, there's going to be ultimate restoration and that nothing is really lost from God's vantage point. It may feel like that to us. But there's these promises here. How will he not also with him grant us everything? And who can bring any accusation against God's elect? We bring accusation. The devil brings accusation against us, right? But God is the one who justifies. You have been made right. Who is the one who condemns? Well, Christ Jesus is the one who died. He's been condemned in your place but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us. And so in the uncertainty and the pain and the brokenness, Jesus is interceding for you. 
And who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I mean, that's quite a list right there. All of those things would bring fear to the average person. They bring a lot of fear to me. And then Paul continues, though. He's like, listen, friends, as it is written, because of you, we're being put to death all day long. We're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Gospel lenses, lenses of faith to be able to see whatever may come, God has got you. God is going to see his purposes through in your life the promises that he made to Abraham, like we're seeing all of that come true because of the work of Christ. It's not to say there's not real pain and hardship or just to skip over that or gloss over that, but it is a reminder that God is the one who's working out his purposes. And there's literally nothing that can be done to you or anything that you can do to change God's love for you. You're in Christ, he loves you, he welcomes you, he pursues you. And so if we're gonna be people that love God, we've got to wear the lenses of faith. Put those on and be reminded of the gospel, be reminded of this good news. And so I wanna pray for us that we would be people that would do that, that we would live in response to the love that God has given to us. So I'd encourage you to take some time as we continue in our service, repent in the ways that you need to repent. It's a return, that's what it means remember the gospel, and we're going to rejoice together through song, through communion. I'll explain that more in a moment, but let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for your unconditional love, your pursuit of us. Thank you for the promises that you made to Abram and how you fulfilled those. Thank you that you continue to be true to your word. Thank you that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ, from God's love for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. So I pray that we would rest in that. I pray you would help us, Holy Spirit, this week to live as people that see the world through gospel lenses, that we be willing to relinquish our rights in order to, to love our neighbor. Help us to do that. Help us to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. May that fuel our actions and the way that we live. And may we remember, God, that you so faithfully love us. We thank you for that. We thank you for that faithfulness that you demonstrate over and over and over again. And so, God, as we continue our service now, we pray, God, that you would get your glory and that we would experience a deep and abiding joy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.